I just found out that my birthday shout outs from last week somehow like the first part of the audio got cut off. And so just like me starting in the middle of the list, naming out people. So we're going to do all of November in one shot. Let me know if you are not named and you're a Patreon supporter and I will get you next week. I want to send a very, very happy birthday to PJ, Tracy, Michelle, Bree, Shelly, Brenda, Leah, Mandy, Marie, Mariah, Christina, Raven, Ellen, Brooke, Lauren, Crystal, Hope, Daisy, Madeline, Amanda, and True Crime Nana. I appreciate everybody's support on Patreon and just general support for the show. And I hope everybody has an amazing birthday month. And I also hope I don't somehow mess this up again. So happy birthday, everybody. And do something extra fun to celebrate. In 2011, Josh and Amber Hilberling's violent marriage ended in a sudden death. Was it an accident during a fight or was it more than that? I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Just a quick reminder that I will be in Seattle on November 20th. We will be at the Orient Express from 6 to 8 o'clock for a meetup with Josh Hallmark from True Crime BS, Lars from Rusty Hinges, Colleen from Misconduct, and I am pretty sure Jessica from Asian Madness will be there as well. And any other podcaster we can rope into coming out to say hi to everyone. I'll have stickers and pins for anyone who comes, so please come by and say hi. On to today's case. This case takes place in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it was a major headline-grabbing case when it happened. Nancy Grace covered it. Dr. Phil covered it. Pretty much everyone covered it. And it is quite the demonstration in there being two sides to every story. So let's get into it. This starts in 2010 when 21-year-old Josh Hilberling and 18-year-old Amber Fields began dating. They had both grown up in Tulsa and they met in passing at a party a couple of years earlier, but it wasn't until early 2010 that they started dating. The relationship between the two of them was very intense for the next four months. They were nearly inseparable. But they were facing a separation because Josh was enlisted in the Air Force, and he had to go to Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio for basic training in May 2010. And after he finished that, he would have additional training in Wichita Falls, Texas. And then after that, Josh could be stationed anywhere. The couple did not break up during their separation. They wrote to each other while Josh was in San Antonio, and then when he was at school in Wichita Falls, he had more freedom to leave during his off time, and he would make the three-and-a-half-hour drive to Tulsa to see Amber. But then Josh got his assignment. He was being sent to Eilson Air Force Base, which is 30 minutes outside of Fairbanks. Fairbanks, as in Alaska. Certainly not driving distance for weekends back in Tulsa with Amber. 
Between Wichita Falls and heading to Alaska, Josh did have an eight-week leave where he went back to Tulsa. He stayed with Amber and her mother for a couple of weeks, but eventually Josh and Amber moved in with a relative of Josh's. According to Amber, Josh started selling oxycodone during this time. He first told her that he was just selling it to make some extra money ahead of going to Alaska, but eventually he confessed to Amber that he was taking the pills himself as well. He said he would stop when he got to Alaska because he would get kicked out of the military if he didn't. Amber said they started arguing a lot during this time because of the drug use, and the arguments would turn physical. But in spite of this, the two decided to get married so that Amber could live on base with Josh in Alaska. They had a simple ceremony in August 2010. In October, they moved to Alaska. Then in December, Amber found out she was pregnant. So to recap, they started dating in early January. They had a few good months of their relationship, but things were taking a turn for the worse. During that time, as things are taking that turn, they got married. They moved 3,500 miles away from everyone they knew and loved, and they found out they were expecting a baby. All of that in less than a year. On New Year's Eve, shortly after Amber found out she was pregnant, a neighbor of theirs reported Josh to the Air Force Security Force after he saw Josh smoking spice, a.k.a. K2. Anyway, the police arrived and found a kit for making the K2 along with a recipe for it. These items were confiscated, but from my understanding, K2 wasn't illegal in Alaska until July 2011, which was six months after this. So they took it, but Josh wouldn't have been prosecuted for it. Two days after this incident, the police were called to the house again by a neighbor due to a domestic dispute that they were made aware of after Amber ran to their house for help. Amber told the authorities when they arrived that she had told Josh she wanted to order takeout rather than cooking, and Josh said no. That started the argument. Amber was in the kitchen preparing dinner when Josh knocked a plate out of her hand. He then screamed in her face and grabbed her breast very hard, allegedly trying to rupture her breast implant. The injuries were photographed, so there is some documented evidence here. On Josh's side of the story, he agreed about the argument, but he said that after he had knocked or tossed the plate, Amber repeatedly struck him in the face. That's when he grabbed her by the breast and pushed her up against the wall. Both of them were taken to the station after this incident. The police were reportedly called to the house again in late January, in mid-February, and then twice in March 2011. Josh was taken into custody after at least two of these calls, and we know Amber was taken into custody after at least one of them, but it doesn't appear like charges were pursued. The two did try marriage counseling. They said that they were very much in love with each other. They were just immature and not quite ready for this relationship. However, they were pregnant, and for the sake of their son, it was worth working on their relationship. 
In early May of 2011, after having been in Alaska for seven months, the couple ended up back in Tulsa. Josh had been discharged from the Air Force. Some reporting says he was honorably discharged, but the paperwork I saw says that it was in under honorable conditions, general discharge. It was noted in the paperwork that the discharge was due to misconduct and that misconduct was drug abuse. When Amber and Josh got back to Tulsa, she was six months pregnant and they moved in with Amber's family. Within two weeks, Josh filed a restraining order against Amber. This was May 19th, 2011. In the written narrative portion applying for this restraining order, Josh outlined multiple instances of abuse towards him from Amber, all that happened while they were still in Alaska. Josh wrote that on February 18th, he filed a report with the Air Force Security Forces after Amber pushed him and he hit his head on the wall. On April 29th, Josh said that Amber was outside crying and he tried to talk to her. She told him to leave her alone and he went inside and sat on the couch. When Amber came back inside into the living room, she told him that he had to sleep on the couch and he said, okay. Amber then pushed slash threw a floor lamp at him. It hit him in the head and Amber stormed upstairs saying she hoped it hurt. The paramedics came and transported Josh to the hospital where he received 10 staples and 11 stitches. He wrote in the application for the restraining order that he filed another report with the security forces at this time. Josh also wrote that there were other instances he never reported where Amber hit him, punched him, and threw things at him. After filing for the restraining order, though, Josh and Amber almost immediately reconciled. According to Amber's mother, who they were living with at the time, the sheriff showed up at the house to serve Amber with the order. Amber and Josh actually laughed about it. When the hearing came, neither one of them showed up at court, so it was dismissed. Amber's mother quickly tired of having Amber and Josh living with her and her husband, According to Amber's family, they learned Josh was using drugs and they had a zero tolerance policy when it came to drugs around their younger children and in their home. Amber and Josh then moved into an apartment her mother and stepfather had at the University Club Tower High Rise in downtown Tulsa. Amber's stepfather was a plastic surgeon, and they kept this apartment for any out-of-town patients who needed a place to stay before or after their surgeries. So it was largely unoccupied, and Amber and Josh moved in. The plan was for the couple to stay there until they could get their own place. It gave them space from the parents. It gave the parents space from them. Amber was 19, and Josh was 23. Though there were no witnesses to the dynamic in their home, we do have text messages between them that showed that all of their same arguments and issues continued. In early June, Josh was planning to go on a trip to Tennessee with some of his friends to see a concert. On the morning of June 4th, 2011, Amber texted Josh 
asking who was paying for this trip to Tennessee. Neither of them were working. They had a baby on the way. So asking who was going to pay was a fair question. Josh said he was going to pay for it, and Amber texted how. He said, I will just be able to. Amber then replied, buy me a crib and then you can go. Josh said he would buy the crib when he got back. There was a little more back and forth where Amber basically said Josh couldn't go to Tennessee and Josh said he was going. Amber then texted that she wasn't going to discuss this with him while he was high. Amber said she believed Josh was going to Tennessee not just to go to the concert, but to sell drugs there. And that is how he intended to both pay for the trip, and it was why he wouldn't be able to buy a crib until he got back. He anticipated making money there. The same day they're having this back and forth, Amber was at her grandmother's house. The couple shared a car, which actually belonged to Amber's mother, and Josh had taken it to go hang out with friends. Amber texted him around 6.30 in the evening saying she needed to go back to the apartment and he had the keys with him. Josh replied that he had to take his friend home first and then he would bring her the keys and Amber told him to go ahead and bring her the car and then she would just leave him alone. He texted back in a little presumably meaning he'd be there in a little while. But we need to remember this car didn't belong to either of them. It belonged to Amber's mother. So Amber said she would just call her mom about it and her mom wouldn't be easy to deal with. Josh's response was basically laughing slash making fun of her for telling on him to her mother, but he did bring the car back and then he left again with some friends. Because of how bad things were, Amber told Josh the next day that she was leaving. She was going to stay with her grandmother for a while to get some space to clear her head. She texted for Josh to take this time to think about what he wanted in life, and she would do the same. Josh did not respond to this text immediately, but he did later text Amber asking her to come pick him up because he was needing a ride to go somewhere else. But when Amber got there to pick him up, Josh had already left. He had managed to get a ride with another friend and hadn't texted her to let her know that. So Amber then started texting Josh what you would really expect from a young person who is upset and emotional it was stuff about how she was crying and felt stupid and how she had used the last of her gas to go get him and he wasn't even there. She then said she was just done. She was done trying to get love and compassion from him and she wanted a divorce. It was the only option left. And Josh texted back, well, this sucks. Amber then told Josh not to come back to their shared apartment. The next text from Josh was an apology. He said he was always with his friends when he should be spending more time with her. He said he was done with all of that. He didn't want to lose her. And Amber's response to the sudden outpouring of love 
and remorse was, are you drunk or something? Josh said he wasn't. These were his genuine feelings, and she deserved better, and he could be better. And Amber texted that she didn't know if she could believe him, and there was some back and forth in regards to this. But we don't know anything that may have been said over the phone. We just have these text messages. Whatever communications they had did not resolve things on Amber's side. On Monday, June 6th, after this weekend of texts back and forth, Amber was done. She told her grandmother she was moving out and she was filing for divorce. Around midnight that night, Josh came home and they went to bed just not speaking. They woke up the next morning, which was June 7th, 2011, and things were tense. Their last communications, as far as we know, were basically talking about a divorce. And they soon picked up their Tennessee argument where they left off. Amber was upset Josh was going when they had so little money of their own and hadn't been spending a lot of time together. The trip also overlapped with Amber's father's wedding, something Josh said he didn't want to go to and something Amber very much wanted him to be a part of. A neighbor overheard some of the arguing. According to this neighbor, a male voice said, well, what do you want me to do? And a female voice yelled back, I want you to grow up. During this fight, Josh picked up a laundry basket and threw it. It hit a bedroom window and the window broke. So Amber called maintenance and asked about getting it repaired. By luck, or possibly because this apartment had crappy windows and needed glass repairmen on hand, they already had two people on site working at another apartment. They were able to come by pretty much right away. Both Amber and Josh were visibly upset when the workmen arrived. One of the two men went down to their truck to grab some supplies, while the other one, Armando Rosales, went to the balcony to begin cutting glass for the repair. He said he was worried because of the tension between Amber and Josh. It was so elevated, and there seemed to be real aggression there. Based on what Armando said, it's not entirely sure which direction he was worried about. At one point, one of his statements made it sound like his concern was Josh because he was a big guy. He was six foot four. He was 220 pounds, while Amber was nearly a foot shorter and visibly pregnant. But at another point, he said things that indicated Amber was the one he was worried about. But either way, he was worried. And he kept an ear out while he was working outside of the view of the living room where Amber and Josh were. But he didn't have to listen very hard to hear what came next. He said he heard a loud crash and then screaming. Worried that Amber and Josh's vague arguing had turned physical, Armando ran into the living room to intervene. But when he got there, no one was there. The window was smashed and the front door was open. Armando's coworker was still on the ground and he called saying he just saw someone 
fall from the window. So Armando ran from the apartment and in the hallway, he saw Amber trying to get onto the elevator. She was screaming. She yelled, is he dead? And the two rode down to the lobby. Armando told someone to call 911 immediately. There was a neighbor who had been outside smoking at the time. He saw Josh fall, so he had already called 911. Amber ran outside, but Josh wasn't there. Then it occurred to her that directly below their apartment wasn't street level. It was a parking garage. So she went back up to the eighth floor where the top of the parking garage was And an apartment manager went with her. The two then found Josh. He had fallen from the 25th floor to the 8th floor. Though he was obviously already dead, Amber kept yelling for someone to help him. She cradled him while saying things like she didn't mean it. It was a little after 4 when paramedics arrived. There was nothing they could do for Josh, but they had to treat Amber, who was in hysterics. She threw up at one point. She passed out at another. She told them she had to call her grandmother. Her grandmother, Gloria, tried to calm her down as Amber told her that Josh fell out of a window after she had pushed him. She said she didn't mean to push him, and according to a medic who overheard the call, Amber said, I'm going to jail. Amber was taken to the police station, but not immediately arrested. The police didn't know what happened here, and honestly, suicide or accident seemed to be the more likely conclusion. They put Amber into a small interrogation room and allowed her grandmother in there with her. Meanwhile, an officer was in an adjoining room, typing up a report. And this officer started overhearing a few snippets of what Amber was saying to her grandmother, and he decided to just go ahead and press record on the audiovisual equipment in the room. Amber was incredibly emotional. She was calling herself a horrible person for having pushed Josh, And she said she pushed him out the window and our grandmother told her to stop saying that. She asked, did you push him intentionally? And Amber said, of course not. Her grandmother told her, don't say anything when the police got in there until her attorney showed up. Amber also said at one point, I wonder if his parents know yet. They were right. They kept saying, if we stay together, I'm going to kill him. After recording Amber and Gloria for a while, nearly an hour from my understanding, the police asked Amber if she was willing to make a statement. She said her mother was sending an attorney, and after he came, Amber made her official statement to the police. So here is what Amber said happened that day. She said that she was doing laundry while Josh waited on his friends to pick him up. He had packed his bags and had them near the door. Amber told Josh that he needed to give her his key to the apartment, and when he got back from his trip, he needed to find somewhere else to stay. That part actually isn't what triggered the fight. Josh agreed to this. Josh's dad said he called him that day and said he was leaving Amber for good. He asked his dad to come pick him up, but it was the middle of a work day 
on a Tuesday, and he couldn't come get him. Josh said that was fine because he did have a friend coming. We also know Amber had those text messages backing up that she initiated divorce talk, at least in the days leading up to Josh's death. It sounds like both of them may have been coming to an agreement that this divorce was going to move forward. But agreeing to get divorced doesn't mean the anger, resentment, frustrations, and heartbreak just go away. So as they kept talking, the talking turned to arguing. Amber said she brought up Josh's drug use and that he was selling drugs instead of getting a regular job. Amber then started going through the laundry basket of clothes to pack to go to her grandmother's house. She took Josh's stuff out of the basket and he asked her what she was doing. Amber said she wasn't going to be doing his laundry for him anymore. According to Amber, that's when Josh grabbed the basket, he dumped everything else out of it, and then he threw it across the room where it hit and broke a window. So an empty laundry basket hit and broke an exterior window in a 25th floor apartment. If you think that glass doesn't sound very safe, you are correct. The glass used in the windows in Amber and Josh's apartment weren't tempered or strengthened in any way. It was the type of glass you cannot use today in a high-rise apartment like this. The thickness and strength of this glass is more in line with what you see in picture frames. And I've broken enough picture frames to tell you that that isn't very resistant to impacts or being dropped on the living room floor. But that is the glass between the inside of Amber and Josh's apartment and the outside. Amber called for the repairman for the glass and she vacuumed up the broken glass while they waited. Amber then went into the living room furious. She yelled, at Josh about how angry her mom was going to be over the broken window and how Josh was being immature. Then she went to hide out in the bathroom to cry. Josh went into the bathroom more meek than before, and he said he knew they needed a break, but that he did want to work things out. They started talking again, and again, it escalated into an argument. Josh then texted his friends to hurry up. He needed to leave. Amber initially said the argument continued into the living room where they were standing two to three feet away from the window. At some point in their argument, Josh grabbed her by the shoulders and she thought he was going to assault her. So she pushed him off of her. When Josh went back, he went between some tall decorative floor candles and the TV. She thought Josh's foot may have hit the TV stand, which then tripped him. As Josh went backwards, he hit the window, which shattered. Because of Josh's height, his center of gravity was high enough that he fell backwards out of the window. Amber said she was briefly able to grab his foot, but he was too heavy for her to hold on to. 
That was Amber's story, and it sounded believable enough. She didn't intentionally push him towards the window. She just pushed him off of her in whatever direction that was. But then some witnesses came forward, and the investigators were not quite so sure about these claims. For one thing, after talking to the first responders at the scene and watching her video with her grandmother, Amber never mentioned this part. Even though Amber told a bunch of people that she pushed him, she never said Josh pushed her first until her formal interview with police with her attorney present. There were also witnesses to how Josh came out of the window and how he landed. Even according to Amber, Josh was face down on the top of that parking garage. But Amber said she pushed Josh from the front and he fell back out of the window. If Josh fell backwards, could he have twisted around to land face down? The answer, according to the medical examiner, was maybe. The medical examiner said it was impossible to tell which way Josh came out of the window, back first or face forward. However, to support the idea that he did come out face first, they did have two witnesses who saw Josh as he came out of the window. They happened to be outside at the time. Both said, based on their perceptions and memories of the incident, Josh was facing out. Being that Josh was waiting for someone to pick him up, some investigators theorized that he may have been looking out the window, waiting on his ride when he was pushed, not from the front in self-defense, but from the back. Another issue the investigators had with Amber's story was the size difference. Amber was five foot five. Josh was six foot four. He was also 220 pounds and he was military trained. If Josh was close enough to Amber to have her by the shoulders, how did she get enough leverage to push him hard enough to make him stumble back to the point he fell? It seemed more likely to the authorities that Amber had caught Josh off guard with the push. That's how she managed to get him off balance enough that he went through the window. But even if all of that was true, did Amber really intend for her husband to go through that closed window? Could she have known the apartment windows were so flimsy that he would go through it? And the answer was maybe. She had literally just seen a laundry basket, empty laundry basket, smash a window in their bedroom. So could Josh going through that window have been her intent when she pushed him? Four hours after her husband's death, 19-year-old Amber Hilberling was arrested on suspicion of first-degree intentional homicide. Now, I want to be clear that I don't think Amber thought Josh was going to go through that window. Whether she cut him off guard or she pushed him in self-defense, that's the question. But I don't think when she pushed him, she thought going through the window is what was going to happen. That's my opinion. Her defense obviously had the same opinion. They had Amber take a polygraph two weeks after Josh's death to prove it. 
The two questions asked were really the same question. One was, did you push Josh out of the window on purpose? And the other was, did you deliberately push Josh out the window? After running the exam once, they did it a second time with the same exact questions. Amber answered no, and she passed both times. But polygraphs are not admissible in court, and frankly, it wouldn't matter in the end because the state of Oklahoma downgraded the charge to second-degree murder. In Oklahoma, second-degree murder does not require an intent to kill. It's not clear if the state agreed Amber didn't intend to kill Josh or if they just didn't think they could prove it. So in Oklahoma, there are two things the state had to prove at trial to prove murder in the second degree. One is that the act that caused the death was imminently dangerous, and two, the conduct evinced a depraved mind in extreme disregard of human life. So basically, they had to prove that the conduct was something a reasonable person would know had an extreme high risk of death and that the person had a total indifference to that and a reckless disregard for the life and safety of the victim. If Amber pushed Josh from the front that caused him to stumble back, trip on the TV, and fall out of the window, they would likely be looking at manslaughter here. But pushing him from the back while he was standing near the window, possibly looking out of it, sounds definitely more like second-degree murder with that extreme disregard for human life. That they were going for second-degree murder made it pretty clear they were going to argue at trial the pushed-from-behind theory. The state did add a manslaughter charge as a lesser charge the jury could consider in the event they didn't find the action met the bar for second-degree murder. Amber did make bond and was released two days after her arrest. She was free on bond in August 2011 when her son was born, but her time on the outside was going to come to an end. A few months later, her bond was revoked. Amber had not kept her ankle monitor charged on multiple occasions, and then she failed drug tests, testing positive for marijuana. Amber, who had said she was shocked and appalled at her husband's drug use, apparently used at least pot herself, and according to Josh's father, Josh complained about it to him. He was upset because Amber wouldn't stop using marijuana during her pregnancy. Amber's story is the complete opposite of that. She said pretty much as soon as they got back to Tulsa from Alaska, it was Josh who was going out partying with his friends all the time, leaving her home alone at her mother's house first and then at the apartment. Well, on autopsy, a toxicology screen was done on Josh. In spite of Amber's claims Josh had spent the month prior to his death, partying with friends and doing drugs, his tox report came back negative. This brought quite a bit of Amber's story into question. You know, I'm not saying someone couldn't sell drugs without using them, but she said he was using drugs during this time. The medical examiner is saying, no, he wasn't. There was a neighbor, Nathan, who came forward to say he heard arguing on the day of Josh's death. 
He then described a sound like someone was running across the apartment. The direction would have been moving across the living room towards the window. He then heard the window breaking. Nathan's story is introducing the theory that Amber didn't so much push Josh as she charged at him. And that would explain how she got enough force to push him out of the window. That said, Nathan was the only neighbor who heard the running. It was a day and a time when a lot of people would have been at work, so it's not surprising there weren't a ton of witnesses. However, that doesn't change the fact that this was one witness interpreting some sounds, and it's not backed up by anyone else or really any evidence. Not like running across a living room leaves a lot of evidence behind, but it's just a solitary story. Amber continued to insist that the push was self-defense and the fall was a tragic accident and really negligence on the part of the building for having such substandard windows. Amber even filed a wrongful death suit against the University Club Tower apartments over it. Now, the prosecution was willing to take Amber to trial on this, but they were also willing to make a deal. This, frankly, was not just an open and shut case. The defense already had window experts ready to come in and testify that the windows were shockingly subpar. That could be persuasive when it's coming to the argument about Amber's disregard for Josh's life and what she could reasonably expect those windows to do or not do. Most of the jurors could probably imagine being in their own homes. Even though we know glass can break, we feel relatively secure even with just a window. The idea that pushing someone in your home is so reckless of an act that you deserve 25 years or more in prison is a pretty big ask of a jury. So the state offered two deals. The first would have been seven years in prison, 13 years suspended, and Amber said no. Then right before trial, they tried again. This time would be five years in prison, and then 15 would be served on probation. Figuring in the time served during pretrial detention, Amber could have been out in a couple of years. She would have been free to raise her baby while he was still just a little boy. But Amber turned it down, going for an acquittal. She said she refused to plead guilty and serve time for a crime she did not believe she was guilty of. Now, I don't know about you, but I could and probably even would have taken this deal. I will lie and say I did something if it got me home to my children in a couple of years versus rolling the dice with a jury who could sentence me to 20 years. And I believe, based on how many plea deals are done every day, that there are a lot of people who would do the same as I would. I just don't have, I guess, that particular type of integrity. I'll say what I have to say to get out of prison. So anyway, that was a tangent. You can let me know what you think about it. Would you admit to something you didn't do to avoid prison? You can just let me know on social media. My podcast now publishes right to Facebook. You can actually go to Facebook and listen to the episodes if you want. So you can just go ahead and comment right under the episode. Would you take a plea deal even if you were innocent? That's my question for you. So let's get back on track. 
Amber was not going to do that. So this case was going to trial. And we have a lot of pretrial motions, a lot of the usual things like change of venue and motions over what evidence would be allowed in front of the jury and what wouldn't. I have heard it said that a case is won or lost in these pretrial motions over what the jury will hear. And in this case, I think it's pretty true. As for what the state wanted out, they wanted any talk of Josh's drug use left out. They said it wasn't relevant because his tox screen was clear. Had he been under the influence, had he been drinking, doing drugs, that might mitigate Amber's responsibility for what happened. But he wasn't under the influence, according to the tox screen, so the drug history was besides the point. The judge agreed, and that was kicked out. The state wanted testimony about the window out, like about how thin it was and how it wasn't safe for an external window. The judge disagreed and allowed it in. Now, the intimate partner violence between the couple was a huge debate. Reading media reports from right after this happened, we heard from Amber's side that Josh was the aggressor and then from Josh's side that Amber was the aggressor. And there was evidence for both. So the state and the defense also tried to make the same arguments for and against allowing in previous instances of violence. The court was initially more in favor of excluding all of it, though Amber would be allowed to address Josh grabbing her by the shoulders since it was part of her self-defense testimony. However, the state ended up successfully arguing that the order of protection should be admissible. That order was in the living room at the time of the incident, which meant it was part of the crime scene. Even though it had been dismissed after Josh failed to show up at the hearing, it was allowed in because the state was right. It was part of the crime scene. It talked about multiple instances of violence where Josh said Amber was the aggressor, and at least one of those is where she pushed him. For the defense, this was a pretty big loss, but the biggest issue was the videotape of Amber and her grandmother, Gloria, from the police station. They did not know they were being recorded, and they spoke very openly. There were things on the tape that benefited Amber's defense. She was clearly distraught and remorseful and saying things like how she didn't mean for Josh to go out of the window. She kept saying that she pushed him and Gloria told her not to say that. Gloria told her she had to fight for her baby and for herself and Amber responded asking who was going to fight for Josh, showing that her concern was with him and not herself in the immediate aftermath. But there were things that didn't benefit Amber, like sound bites of her saying, I killed Josh. That was not going to sound great to a jury. Also, she never mentioned on those tapes that Josh put his hands on her first. She's talking openly about every detail and every feeling to her grandmother. She doesn't know the police are listening in, and she does not mention self-defense. Another thing the defense was wary about when it comes to this tape is that it wasn't complete. That officer didn't hit record on it the minute they walked into the room. It was only after he realized what they were talking about that he started recording. And there are chunks of the recording that were missing or glitchy. 
The state said it was a tech issue, but the defense smelled a rat. In the end, the defense saw the tape as a net loss, so they wanted it kicked. One argument they tried was that this violated Amber's Miranda rights against answering questions when she said she wanted her attorney to be there. But the judge ruled that no one was asking Amber questions. It was a conversation between her and her grandmother, and her grandmother was not an agent of the state. The second argument they tried was that this violated Amber's right to privacy, but the judge determined that Amber didn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy when she's sitting in a police interrogation room. So the video was in. The court also had initially decided to block any images of Josh's body. No one was disputing how he died. No one was even disputing that Amber pushed him. The entire disagreement was over the charge, so there was really no reason to show his body. However, the prosecution pushed back on this, saying that the photographs helped prove their theory that Josh went face first, meaning he was pushed from behind. So some of the images were allowed in. The medical examiner would testify that there was no way to know which way he was facing when he went out the window, so why the photographs to the jury would give more information than the medical examiner, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer or a judge, so I have to accept there's a lot of things I don't know. The conversation about intimate partner violence between the couple was largely left out of the court through all of these rulings, but it was not left out of the media. And the reporting in the media, including coming from the attorneys, was problematic. You know, I really don't like the word problematic very much because we're now using it to avoid calling things out for what they really are. Like, we'll say something's problematic because it sounds nicer than calling it racist, I guess. It's a nicer, gentler way of calling things out, and I'm really not a fan of that. But I think in this situation, problematic is the right word here. I don't have a better one. Josh was six foot four, Amber was five foot five, and she was pregnant. Therefore, according to some comments out there in the media in general, there were questions about Amber being the primary abuser or aggressor because Josh was so much bigger. And that is an issue men experiencing intimate partner violence deal with regularly. This idea that they cannot be abused because they are bigger. Men and women can abuse people who are bigger than them. Abuse is about a lot more than who would win in a street fight. Amber could have been four foot six and still have been the aggressor. The truth of what happened between Amber and Josh is only known by them. But we do have a glimpse into it through those police reports. And I personally believe that they show that this is a case of two partners engaging in violence against each other. And this violence escalated until one of them died. The trial for Josh's murder began in March 2013. The state was seeking to prove that second-degree murder charge but like I said, the jury was allowed to consider first-degree manslaughter. So they had three options, guilty of second-degree murder, guilty of first-degree manslaughter, or not guilty. We have already covered the bulk of the state's case in this episode. 
Amber pushed Josh, it wasn't self-defense, and it was reckless enough to meet the definition of second-degree murder. As for the defense, there were three key defense witnesses. One was Amber's grandmother, Gloria. She testified that, contrary to what the jury heard on the video of their conversation, Amber did tell her that Josh grabbed her. The officer did not hit record as soon as they went into that room. There were earlier statements made that were not recorded, and it was during those statements that Amber mentioned that Josh grabbed her. Another witness was that glass expert. He testified that the window was too thin, too old, and not the type of safety glass that should be in a high-rise. He said that if the window was up to current safety standards, there was no way Josh would have gone through it. The third witness was Amber herself. She testified about some of the issues in the marriage, though, like I said, she couldn't discuss all of it. Her testimony focused on what happened that day, and she insisted Josh grabbed her first. The defense did have photographs of bruises on her shoulders, which she said were caused by Josh grabbing her so hard. During cross-examination, the prosecution had Amber come down from the stand and demonstrate, full force, how she pushed Josh. They had a detective who was about his size stand in. When Amber tried to push him, she could not get him to stumble back the way she said Josh did. This reinforced the state's theory that Amber could not have pushed Josh if he was being the aggressor and braced for it. She must have caught him off guard. This demonstration, and in fact, the video and all of the evidence, was very persuasive to the jury. They took the case, they deliberated for three hours, and they came back with a verdict of guilty for second-degree murder. In Oklahoma, the jury recommends a sentence, but the judge is the one who actually decides it. In this case, the judge took the jury's recommendation and sentenced Amber to 25 years. In this case, the jury recommended 25 years. Oklahoma requires 85% of the sentence to be served before parole eligibility. So Amber was going to have to serve 20 years behind bars after being given credit for time served during pretrial detention. And this is after Amber turned down a deal that would have had her out in five years. The prosecutor said to the media that the sentence was appropriate and the jury may have chosen 25 years based on the 25th floor window Josh was pushed out of. I think she meant it to sound poetic, but it sounds absolutely ridiculous and arbitrary. And I hope she's wrong. I hope... The jury based their recommendation on the actual facts of the case. Poetic justice is not in the Oklahoma statutes. And for the prosecutor to say something like this disturbs me. Maybe I'm being salty about this comment for no reason. You can let me know. I just really hate these sound bites people come up with. They think they sound good, but when you scratch the surface, you realize this is actually terrifying to think a jury just picks a number based on some random element of the crime. And it's disturbing a prosecutor thinks that's brilliant. Anyway, let's move on. Amber did appeal based on lack of evidence to support the conviction, improper evidence, ineffective assistance of counsel, and prosecutorial misconduct. 
the prosecutorial misconduct accusation comes from a witness. At trial, they had a jailhouse informant testify that Amber laughed about killing Josh, indicated that she intentionally pushed him, and said, I killed the bastard. But Amber's attorney talked to the informant later, who admitted she was actually high on meth when Amber allegedly made those statements, and that the prosecutor knew that. This could have altered her memory or her perception of what was said and how it was said, but the prosecutor allegedly told her not to tell anyone about her being high on meth. The prosecutor allegedly withheld this important information from the defense. Now, the appeal didn't go anywhere, and it was denied in April 2014, but Amber said she intended to continue to seek release from prison. But before any additional appeals could go anywhere on October 24th, 2016, Amber Hilberling was found dead by another inmate. The guards attempted resuscitation, but she was declared dead 15 minutes after being found. Her cause of death was asphyxiation due to hanging, and the manner of death was ruled a suicide. Amber's family believes that she was actually murdered by another inmate, and that this murder of a high-profile inmate was then covered up. Prisons have lots of security cameras everywhere, obviously, yet the one that would have shown what happened in Amber's cell was not working at the time. The autopsy noted scratches on Amber's neck and a bruise on her jaw, which her family believes were from Amber trying to fight off someone attacking her. The family did ask for an independent autopsy, but that request was denied. The day after Amber's death, a letter from Amber arrived at the local news station, Tulsa's KJRH. It was not a suicide note, quite the opposite. It was Amber agreeing to do an interview. She said she was reluctant at first because of how she had been portrayed in the media previously, but she also knew that her voice was her only hope at getting what she believed was the truth out there and in changing the circumstances she found herself in. To Amber's family and supporters, this letter contains the words of a woman who was not suicidal, but ready to fight to go home to her son. After Amber's death, Josh's family provided a statement to Two News Oklahoma. In part, it read, This is not time to dig up hate and contempt. Joshua and Amber are gone from this earth forever. We are left with pain and memories. Our wish for Amber's family is to try to remember the good times you had with Amber. We are praying for peace for everyone, including Josh's family and friends. Both families have lost a child. There are no winners in either of these horrible events. It is tragic for everyone. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crime Lines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crime Lines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. 
And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for.